Devonta Smith, the Alabama wide receiver who was named the Heisman Trophy winner, went off in the NCAA National Championship game. Oh my gosh, went off. 12 receptions, 215 yards, three touchdowns in the first half. Then doesn't play the second half with the finger injury. Didn't need him anyway. Alabama rolled Ohio State. 52-24. They're the champs. If you didn't think Alabama was going to win, you were foolish. Dominant. Crazy defense. Crazy offense. Probably four NFL wide receivers. The quarterback, Junior Mac Jones. 36-45. 464 yards. Five TDs. Scored five touchdowns, 464 yards. Just crazy performances. And Devonta Smith deserved the Heisman Trophy over Trevor Lawrence, which was shocking. When you heard that the award show was happening, like, okay, they're going to give it to Trevor Lawrence. No really reason to watch. Then I get a notification on my phone that Devonta Smith won, and I was super crazy shocked, but it was well worth it. He deserves it, and he proved it in a half, one half. Of the national championship game. I'm really excited to see him in the NFL. That was his last college game and he is a stud. I don't think there's going to be any less than that in the NFL as well. So fast, great route runner, knows how to play the game. He's humble. He's not talking smack. He does what he does, sits down, waits till he gets back on the field. I love it. I love it. And I'm ready. I'm ready to see him at the next level. Besides Smith and Jones already said their stats, senior running back Najee Harris went off too. 22 carries, 79 yards for two touchdowns, and then had seven receptions, 79 yards, and a touchdown. Alabama went to work. Justin Fields, quarterback for Ohio State, did not look that great. He struggled. Played amazing against Clemson in the semifinal to get to the championship game against Alabama but just cannot do it again. Did not look great. Not saying he looked awful, but he just didn't look like everybody was talking. Justin Fields is so awesome, he's really good. He's cool, he's cool, but he did not perform well on a huge stage. Had to lead in with the game since it was just a few hours ago. Did some editing after it. It is Monday, January 11th. Had to start off with that game. I'm your host, Brandon LaChance. This is episode 150 of Edge of Your Seat Podcast. 150 shows in a little bit over a year. Started in October of 19, and here we are. It's crazy. It's amazing. Thank you for being with us every time you listen, every time you check out social media, Edge of Your Seat Podcast on Facebook, Edge of Your Seat P on Twitter. Really appreciate that. Also, can always send us an email, edgeofyourseatpodcast at gmail.com about anything, question, a suggestion, want to be a guest, think you know somebody that would be a good guest, advertising opportunities, because definitely like giving some spotlight, some shine on local businesses in the Illinois Valley, doesn't matter where you're at in Illinois, put you on Edge of Your Seat Podcast. Would love to write some ads and promote what you're doing. Whether it's a product, whether it's a business, anything. So if you want to reach out about that, feel free. And again, Edge of Your Seat Podcast 
at gmail.com. And why not start right there with an advertisement from our good buddies at Shimmer Mendota Ford. Mendota Ford is a community dealership dedicated to being community first. After a horrible 2020 in every sense of the term, Mendota Shimmer Ford wants to help usher in the new year, 2021, with style, comfort, and great deals. Stop by and see the 2021 Ford Bronco Sport or the Ford F-150, both in stock at Shimmer Mendota Ford. These are just a few of the options at the dealership as it has a huge selection of new and used vehicles on the lot and even more on the website www.mendotaford.com. Whether you shop online or at Shimmer Mendota Ford, located just south of Mendota on Highway 251, manager Ski Hartman and his associates, Tony, Jason, and Doug, will use their expertise and understanding of the vehicle you're looking for to help you roll through 2021 just the way you want. Call 815-539-9314 for all vehicle inquiries for Shimmer Mendota Ford. This is the first episode of Edge of Your Seat Podcast for 2021. Thank you for being part of this again. This is why I do it. Don't want to talk to yourself. And the reception of Edge of Your Seat Podcast and even everything that I've been going through personally kind of set back shows. Things have been kind of tough a little bit. We're all going through a crazy COVID-19 deal, pandemic, and people are still listening giving me feedback and really, really appreciate that. I hope 2021 is way better than 2020 and you're able to have a great year and do everything that you want to do. So I took a little break. Last show was December 31st. Like I said, today is January 11th. Took a little break, got to refocus, recharge the batteries, and now we're going to crush 2021 with some amazing episodes of Edge of Your Seat Podcast, amazing guests, and bring you a show you want to hear routinely every time we come out thank you thank you thank you for all the listening all the feedback everything that you mean to me much love much respect speaking of much love much respect have to give a warm a sad a heartfelt shout out rest in peace to a friend of many years who i have lots of memories with Ricardo Sarabia of Mendota passed away on Saturday. It was tough. I got the text message while I was out to dinner with some coworkers and instantly, you know, you could see a change of mood. Like things were just not the same and there weren't. Really good dude passed away and it's sad. Early 30s, way too young. Way, way, way too young. I'm not gonna dive into stories and stuff right now because I'm going to do a tribute show. I already reached out to family members and friends and we're going to do a show for Ricardo because the great dude that he was, how funny he was and what he meant to people, he deserves his own show, his own time, his own tribute. And we're gonna give that to him on Edge of Your Seat Podcast probably by the end of this week or beginning of next week. So stay tuned for that. But a rest in peace to Ricardo Sarabia you meant a lot to a lot of people. You were funny. You were always smiling. I never seen you mad. I never seen you out of sorts. Never. And me, prideful person, I get mad. 
People see me out of sorts. People see me losing my cool. You never did that. Not once. Not that I know of. Nobody's told me that, and I never seen it. You're always a really cool, laid back, a lot of fun type of dude. And you deserve your own show. You're going to get it. But I definitely had to, you know, tell you rest in peace and, you know, your thought of all my thoughts and everything are with you and your family and, man, another amazing person gone way too young. On this episode 150, we have Robert Shelton, grew up with friend of Edge of URC podcast and the creator of the intro outro beat. Of course, I'm talking about Brian Cavelli, who was just on this podcast not too many episodes ago. I want to believe like three. I think it was on 147. Robert Shelton and him grew up, and Shelton got into the movie business. Woke up one day and was like, hey, I want to go to film school. I want to do something in the movie industry. And he has. He did. He fulfilled his dream, and he tells us all kinds of awesome stories going from Iron Man 3, Fast and the Furious 7, Selma. I could keep listening, but he lists himself and tells us awesome stories through his journey through the movie industry. We talk some sports. We talk some Brian Cavelli. Well, kind of ride him a little bit. You know, that's what friends do, right? But great, great conversation. And I was really, really lucky and happy to meet Robert. Never talked to him before and got him on the show. And it was a monster conversation. The longest conversation in Edge of Your Seat podcast history. So, talked about the national championship, NCAA college football game. Shout out, rest in peace to Ricardo Sarabia. Going to do two other advertisements for our amazing advertising team, the family at Edge of Your Seat podcast. And then we're going to go straight to Robert. We're going to be back three more times this week. Since I took the break, I'm going to make it up to you guys with four episodes each week for the rest of January. So we're going to cut this one short because the next one is going to be amazing as well. We got the deep dive of Harry Styles' album, Fine Line, that you guys voted for. A very, very close vote. Just beat Linda Ronstadt in a crazy, crazy vote. I think it was by like one vote. And it was the most votes that we had received on the deep dives too. So again, much love support for interacting and and being part of the show because it's nothing without you. Do a couple ads, get to Robert, and we'll be back real soon. Like in less than 12 hours probably. Maybe we'll go 16 hours. I got to work and stuff like that. But going to have a bunch of shows this week and all January to just share excitement of being alive. People are passing all the time. And you never know when it's our day. So if you love listening to Edge of Your Seat Podcast, and I love doing Edge of Your Seat Podcast, hosting Edge of Your Seat Podcast, let's keep it rolling and hit it hard in 2021. Let's face it, it's not easy to get into shape or to stay physically fit. There are factors working against all of us, including time and work schedules, lack of a support system, maybe motivation is low, don't want to be judged or criticized if not, supporting a gym rat body, or injuries, physical restrictions. However, there is a place where all these no's or maybes become yeses. LP CrossFit. LP CrossFit located at the Prue Mall across from Secret Nails offers 
a weekly schedule of classes for any level of fitness. It's not one time. It's not just one day a week. There are many options and classes only last one hour. A support group? LP CrossFit is a diverse community focused on fun and hard work. All members know each other's names and support one another during workouts. Motivation? The trainers at LP CrossFit help you reach your goals and get into the best shape of your life with workouts of numerous movements including body weight, gymnastic, and barbell. Everyone is guided or pushed at a productive and comfortable level. If you're an experienced athlete or getting your first taste of physical fitness, everyone is welcomed and viewed as equals. You would go at your own pace. You want to go hard? The atmosphere is, hello, how are you? Go get at it. Want a more relaxed approach? It's the same welcoming. Hello, how are you? Go get at it. Injuries and mobility restrictions are a huge priority at LP CrossFit as all small group classes are coach-led and movements are infinitely scalable for all members. LP CrossFit opens all doors for everyone. Check out LP CrossFit on Facebook or at lpcrossfit.com. When you get out of the gym, you go home, you also still want to be comfortable. You want to relax. You want to enjoy being at your home. Ulsa Construction can help you. Even in the wintertime, it's January, they can come do some indoor things for you, whether it's your house, a shed, a garage. Ulsa Construction works hard to help its customers any time of the year. It doesn't have to just be outside. They can do stairs, tiling, anything inside of your home. Brothers Keith Miles and Tommy Olson will use their more than 10 years of experience to take care of your home renovations from start to finish with your thoughts and opinions taken with every step of the journey. The licensed and insured family owned and operated company prides itself in offering family prices with family honesty on any job. Whether it be roofing, siding, windows, doors, stairs, deck designs, floors and tiling, garage additions, room additions, or full remodels. For a free estimate, call Olsa Construction at 815-910-5982. Check out the Olsa Construction LLC page on Facebook or send an email to olsaconstruction19 at gmail.com. Well, that's the intro. Come back. We will be back Tuesday. Like I said, probably like 16 hours from now with another episode. Got great guests lined up. I've been doing a lot of chatting. Even though I took a break from editing and putting out shows, did a lot of conversing. We got a list of guests up and they're all great. Amazing conversations and they're all different and bring different perspectives. And it's amazing to be hosting Edge of Your Seat Podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Peace. Although I've known of this dude for... Man, about 15, 16 years. Knew of him. Knew he was a friend of my friend. So we had a mutual friend named Brian Cavelli who was just on the podcast a couple episodes ago. So this is kind of like our meeting. We talked the other day to, you know, talk about the show and what we were going to do here. But I was kind of excited. Robert Shelton, mutual friend of Brian Cavelli's. It is a pleasure to meet you and have you on Edge of Your Seat Podcast. I uh, thank you so much. We both know Coco. You know, you knew him SIU Saluki days. I've known him since uh, the Cavelli flick and when he was single, which was in 1806.
that's how long he's been <laughs> I was gonna say okay. since Nam. <laughs> like he hasn't been single since Nam, but eighteen oh six that's even longer. <laughs> right. Uh yeah, he's he's a solid dude, man. He's he's one of my best friends and you know it's funny, one of the stories that he might he might have told you is back in the day when we first met, we didn't like each other and I called him a Colombian booty scratcher. He got real like upset and cried. And I felt so bad and we've been super tight ever since. I swear. This is, this is a true story. Uh, he'll probably get mad at me for saying that. Nah, he'll laugh. He'll laugh. One of my best friends, well, probably my best friend, kind of met the same way. Kids, probably a freshman in high school, I'm walking across the field, and all of a sudden this, this truck drives by, and this dude jumps out. He's got glasses on. I can tell he's drunk. Walks right up to me. And just staring at me. He is six seven. I am about six foot, probably, you know, over exaggerating about a half inch. But I say six foot, it's easier to round up. Anyway, I'm looking up at this dude and he's like, You got a problem? I'm like, No, but we gotta do something, let's do it. And we were cool since then. We were cool since then. Oh, that's awesome. We got a problem, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> now he's been like my best friend for like twenty years. Yeah, man, I think you need some of the most indelible people in life through the most indelible ways. So that's how you know they stick around. For sure. No doubt about that. So another yeah. reason I had you on besides wanting to meet you, like I said, Cavelli would talk about you. Hey, my guy from home, and you tell a story. Always cool. Like, hey, if I'm up there and I see you, it'd be cool to meet your friend. Never got that opportunity. I think I've only been up to Evanston or Chicago to see Brian maybe two or three times. Anyway. Mm. I know you're huge in the movies, man. <laughs> yes, I, I I love movies. Movies were and are still to me some of the most uh, just like amazing things. Windows to uh, different perspectives of the world. Movies make you cry, make you think, make you laugh so hard you cry and think at the same time. So you're just totally thrown off. You know, I, I <laughs> I'm a big movie fan, and uh, I was very blessed to work in the industry and be a part of it and be a part of so many amazing shows and amalgamation of great minds, you know, and really, really funny trucker jokes because Teamsters are awesome. <laughs> well, we could talk about Teamsters maybe a little later, but let's talk about what you've done in movies. So did you go to art school? Did you go to a school to be able to have these opportunities? In March 2011, I was about 24. I was sleeping on my grandma's basement couch. I watched Wrecking Room for a Dream. And I've always knew I wanted to work in movies as a kid, and I never wanted to pursue the dream. You know, like, chasing that brass ring is a very, very tough thing because a lot of times realism sets into your ideology versus just risking it, you know? So I was just like, man, I can go to film school. Forget it. I'm going to go. So after watching Record for a Dream by Darren Aronofsky, one of my favorite films, I literally picked up the next day and went to a school called Full Sail University in Orlando, Florida. It was amazing. Like, at the time, I moved down there with $2,500 in my pocket and my then-girlfriend who turned to, into being my wife and now ex-wife. But, you know, there's still respect there. Kind of. <laughs> but, anyway, <laughs> but anyway, like, you know, uh, I went to a film school that was very different. Instead of spending, you know, time in classes, we were hands-on, extremely. And I was touching professional-grade cameras, uh, lighting gear, sound stages, and all that stuff before I even graduated film school. I was doing that in the first couple of months of being there. I also lucked out and moved next to someone who was an amazing 
brilliant person. His name is Cody Lasseter. Uh, he is one of the youngest studio heads at Lionsgate for Lionsgate a Security IP. He uh, actually is my, was my mentor, lived, lived across the hallway from me. There's a ton of stories I could talk about in film school, but this is the most important thing I've learned. He literally showed me how to get on any movie anywhere in the world from the ground up, and it was amazing to watch him do it on a big budget film like Iron Man 3. I was very blessed that I was able to do the same thing on a big budget movie, and I didn't know a soul. I knew him, but I didn't name drop. I spent three months of research getting on that movie, and this is exactly what I did. I would call the Florida film office and change my voice, my inflection. I wrote out about 36 different characters uh, to get bits and pieces of information, and just I just kept hammering at it. Call location coordinators. I mean, just, I was on it. Next thing you know, I had four people, you know, interview me on one of the highest budgeted movies and most anticipated movies in the world. And this again was Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3. So what exactly did you do for the movie? Okay, so everyone talks about Marvel security, right? Marvel security is no joke. I've worked for them. I worked in Marvel security for Barry Curtis. So here's the thing about intellectual properties that have high values, right? When you're making something and you're budgeting $200 million, $250, $300 million, you know, you have to keep eyes on things at all times because it's important to make sure that nothing leaks. And if it is leaked, it's a controlled leak or, you know, you don't want things to leak because it can spoil the anticipation. I spent two weeks in Miami overnight (laughs) watching sets and trucks and cars. And I was a PA. Now, when people hear that, they're like, oh, okay, entry level, you know, I was very, I was ecstatic. You know what I mean? I did this before I even graduated film school. And this was huge for me. You know, like, my first movie wasn't a horror movie where I had to work overnight and slept up a hill. My first movie wasn't a TV show or anything. My first movie was one of the highest grossing movies of all time, and I got to be a part of it, granted, two weeks. But those two weeks translated into basically a big part of my life in a way that achieving things like that made tangible. When you are able to do something that almost feels impossible, just to, you know, and you're willing to spend three months of research for two weeks of work, a position that is only made up for Marvel Studios, right? But a very important position, to keep eyes and ears on, in, on things that are very valuable to stories or whatever you know they want you there for. That sense of accomplishment was was intoxicating. I was instantaneously addicted to the film industry after that. One of the worst and best experiences of my life, though. Uh, I stayed at a hostel in Miami, and that was interesting. Uh, I ended up sleeping in my car the last three days, but I did something like that. And that propelled me when I got to Atlanta after I graduated to be able to work on shows. You know, the small blessings and the small things in the film industry can lead to great opportunities. And it's one of these businesses where it's hard, it's grueling, it's... It's, it can be. It can take so much from you, but man, it can give you some of the greatest feelings and just life-altering moments. Doing something like working on that show was just really amazing because it really, uh, I think it really sparked that fire and that desire to work extremely hard to get to a level in which I was, which I wanted. 
not to sound like a braggart or anything like that, but I literally went to film school with the ideology of going to work for Marvel Studios. I didn't know how, I didn't know who, and that, but that was my goal. I was very blessed. You know, after film school, moved to Atlanta. The first show was a show called Satisfaction. The internship, then I worked on Fast and Furious 7. Let's slow down for a second. For the show Satisfaction, mm-hmm. what did you do for that show? Most of my work was office PA production and location and Marvel security, right? And costumes. I jumped around for a very long time. So Satisfaction, I was office PA. For, you know, your first year, your first two or three years in working on shows, some people say, oh, I, I've never PA'd. You know, they, they wear, some people wear it as a badge of honor. I personally believe that if you want to be the best person at anything, you master the craft from the ground up. So my first job was an office PA on Satisfaction. And then I was an office PA for second unit on Fast and Furious 7. A little thing that people don't know about movies. Uh, second unit is the people who do stunts. Blow up stuff, crashes, crazy car sequences. I pretty much worked next door to a chop shop that was a big warehouse that I literally watched people put bullet holes in all these cars. I met this wonderful lady named uh, Debbie Evans. If you saw her, you would think she's a soccer mom. You put her behind the wheel of any car and you'll see one of the top five women of all time in stunts, motorcycle driving, and car driving. I saw this lady hop in a Mustang and do a reverse 360 around the pole like it was nothing. Amazing. That was so fun. It was so it was so much fun working on that show. That sounds um, fun. Like, I am having fun just listening to you tell these stories. Like, that's awesome. The greatest stories about some of the, and I'll keep going, but like, so another big thing about Fast and Furious 7, obviously Paul Walker was, was a part of that show. And the thing about people and the thing about people who are good people in the world is that it resonates when they are missing. And so after his death, it was very hard to work on that show for a lot of people. I came on after that, after his death for a reshoot. And the times I was able to be on set, it was, it was uh, very hard. I learned very quickly in this business that it's a very much a family. And the Fast and Furious 7 thing is really a family, but... I think it resonates more throughout the business that everyone is works so hard and you spend a minimum 12 hours a day together. You know, they pay you for 12 hours a day. And so your family and your connectivity is so important. I think that was a good thing about Fast and Furious 7. When you say PA, when I hear it, I'm thinking like, you know, PA at a baseball game or a basketball game and you're saying who's in the coming in the game who's substitutes what does that mean being a PA for a movie what did your job consist of okay PA 101 here you go production assistant is someone in the office that answers phones stocks refrigerators does copies um, basically is the right hand to the production team at the entry level to do you know, filing, basic paperwork, and that kind of stuff. Office PAs, though, are very important when it comes to one thing, keeping the flow and pace of an office going with small, minute things of, you know, prepping tables and making copies to making runs to doing lunches to sometimes taking notes. I mean, I've seen office PAs do everything from 
order crazy black card level food to um, giving people rides to the airport. It's a very entry level position in the terms of being someone who does things with a wind in your ear. That is a direct quote from someone who works in the movies is that as an office PA, when you move, when you do anything, it better be with a wind in your ear. Quick, fast, and w with a great attitude. Because anything else, you will not be back. The industry is very tough because 90% of it has nothing to do with skill. 90% of it has everything to do with being a person that people can stand to be around. Because the 10% of skill that you, is required is, are givens. Like... Being able to work hard, work fast, do things quickly, efficiently, um, understand the flow of what's going on, knowing when to step in or step out, knowing when to ask the right question. These are all things and skills and traits in the business that are very different than a lot of other businesses. Because in, for instance, if you worked at an office in a, in a, at a bank or something, right? Uh, or anything. They have an HR team where it's like, Oh, well, we're going to bring you on and then give you 30 days probation or 90 days probation if you're not good. In the movie biz, it's like this. You come on, we try you out, and then if you work out, you work out. If you don't, they cut you. It's like the NFL, and I'm not even joking. It's not so much that it's cutthroat. It's just that the level and standards in which people have to do things and work at are so high because the stakes are so high. The amount of money that is spent in a project-based industry is so high. And the amount of creativity and just the amalgamation of a brilliant minds to do these things are a very high level. And so you learn amazing things and you learn how to be a strong person at times. I mean, I've literally seen people who run some of the most powerful studios in the world walk into a room and be one of the kindest people on the planet that you would instantaneously be intimidated by because they yield so much power. But you get that out of your head because you're like, wait a minute, they're just like everyone else. They might be a little eccentric, but their commonality and kindness and the way that they have their attitude, you know, sets the tone throughout the business. And so, you know, I was very lucky to work with so many great minds. So you're talking about paperwork and office. Like when I think of movies... What office work? What paperwork is there for movies? <laughs> okay, are you ready? I'm ready. I'll just give you one department. I was a location coordinator. Okay. Imagine you're sitting in a parking lot at a, at a grocery store, right? Okay. You are across the street from that parking lot, apartment complex that you're shooting at, right? This is the amount of logistical paperwork just as a location coordinator. And I might even slip up on this, and some coordinators might hear this and be like, ah... He, miss, he messed up, but he's kind of right. All right. First things first, you have to pay off the parking lot, the people who own the parking lot, which is a huge chunk of money. Then you have to pay off the grocery store people. Then you have to file that paperwork with accounting. And then once accounting files that paperwork, they cut a check. And once that check is cut, then they pay off the people. Then you have to file about three or four different permits. And then you have to get a bunch of what is called planning-like maps where you have to have controlled stops everywhere cones, all that stuff, where the police are going to be. Then you have to pay the police, and then you have to cut police checks, and then you have to get the <laughs> then you have to get the location permit for 
for the actual location that you're shooting. And then everything around it has to be paid off and people have to be moved. And then once that happens, you have to have prep days where people can come in and actually set up and do everything from art department to logistical anything, special effects, all that. And then uh, you have to file the paperwork for that. Then you have to give with the teamster coordinator, coordinate trucks and where trailers are going to be. And that is just maybe one day. That's just not even like the paperwork you have to file with the city. The paperwork that you have to all get signed and approved by UPMs that has been budgeted. And then that's just like one person and one department. So there's so much logistical things that are done on a movie set. Everything you see on screen is motivated. Everything. There is not one hair, not one cup, not one piece of light that is not controlled or meant to be there. It is every single time you see a scene, it is a living work of art. From the hair to the clothes to the nails to everything is all motivated and it's all pre-planned. And it's one of the most astounding things to watch so many people from all these different departments work together to come up with a look or an image or just all of these amazing looking things or really captivating stories or in all that stuff being separated by sometimes buildings or like Game of Thrones by whole countries. So I'm always, I'm always in awe of the amount of level of stuff that you have to do for a film. It's not like, hey, we got a camera, we got these cool looking people, let's <laughs> shoot and things happen. That doesn't, that's not what goes on? Oh man, in order to even, <laughs> just to, this is just for camera theme, right? You're prepping out a camera package for a TV show, right? For instance, something like Ozark, right? Uh, you have an A cam, a B cam, and a C cam, and that uh, package has been prepped out for a week and a half, where people have sat and tested everything, have wrapped tape around stuff. I mean, it's, it's it's a lot of work. I mean, everybody is paid in the film industry for 12 hours a day. They don't even charge people by the hour. None of that. Everyone's on a day rate of a minimum 12. They pay you for 12 hours a day. And gentlemen, like Brad Pitt said, they want them scalps. It's full tilt, full grind. You move with a wind in your ear, and you do things with a great attitude. It's hard work, and I mean work, but it's addictive and intoxicating. I never had to pay for lunch. I can't remember the last time I ate food where I had to buy it. <laughs> when I was working on shows, it was great. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like, it, it was amazing. Just some of the things that I was able to see and do, words can express how much it was so fulfilling, but yet you sacrifice. There'll be times where you start at 7 a.m. on Monday. You have to push, call, and turn around. And so you start at 7 a.m. on Monday, then it pushes to 10 on Tuesday, then it pushes to noon on Wednesday, then it pushes to 3 on Thursday, then Fridays, you're working something called a Friday, where you start at 5 p.m., 7 p.m., and then you go all the way until 7 a.m. Saturday morning. And then you start over and do it again. And, and it can be grueling. X-Men Days of Future Past, I think they shot that whole entire movie, or almost that whole entire movie on six or seven days a week. But once again, it's movies. I mean, like, literally, with some of the complaints I've heard, you, like, take a step back and you're just like... I remember one time I called Brian. I was like, Brian, I'm miserable. He's like, what are you talking about? I was like, man... I'm just miserable right now. He's like, what are you doing right now? I said, I'm standing on the side of a hill 
in fake Wakanda. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, watching Black Panther's fake white people in a bunch of explosions. And he's like, what are you complaining about? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, I was hot. You know what I'm saying? I was just, I was just super hot. And like, the, the, the things that we, that I took for granted never, never really escaped my mind because I would always pull myself back in and be like, nah, dude, it's amazing. Like the final fight scene in Black Panther, I was there for it. All the explosions and the way that Ryan Coogler hiked up the, the background and, and the way that they did everything was with energy, with poise, with fun and levity. And it was just amazing. I can keep going on about this stuff, man. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Fast and the Furious 7, where did you go from there? What else have you worked on? So I've worked on uh, Ant-Man, Captain America Civil War, Being Mary Jane, Selma, Luke Cage, Daredevil, Ozark, One Point Constantine, at One Point Vampire Diaries. What else, what else, what else? Obviously Black Panther. In the film business, you day play a lot. And I was bouncing around. I'm going to tell you something that I think I should say before I continue. It's very important to me, and, and I think that will give you a better understanding. I wanted to be a studio head and be a producer. My goal was to work in as many departments as I could as a PA, go back to the office, and just move up to the office. You start as a PA, go to secretary, you go to assistant production, office coordinator, then you go to office coordinator, then you go to production supervisor, and then you become a UPM, and then you become a producer. That route is a very long route. That's a 12-year route. I kept bouncing around because I started to realize that the amount of sacrificing that one must do to put yourself in rare air is a great toll, a high toll, a toll in which I decided that it was not worth it. I got tired of missing birthdays and friends and things like that. So, you know, when I was on Lovecraft Country, right, I was in the office. And then when I was done with that, I moved on to The Watchmen. I was in location. And, like, I worked in Superfly and as a location coordinator. Uh, all these things I started to realize was great. But for me, a minimum 12-hour days that got kicked up to, like, 15 and 16 and 17 working six days and seven days, it was great. But that amount of sacrifice to me was incredibly hard because me, I want to have a great work-life balance. And it became more addictive than career-oriented. I would go on shows and be like, yes, I don't have to pay for lunch. And like, yes, we're going to be doing it. And, you know, and like all these great things. But then I would see my, my wife maybe... In passing, Monday through Friday, we might have one day on a weekend, if that. And so, shows were amazing. I mean, I worked on Godzilla. I went to London and trained and worked on Mary Poppins for a second. And I worked out of the Orson Welles building. I went to George Lucas's permanent office. I literally walked up the steps where they shot the Omen. I mean, I have had great, great experience. The things that I've done... It was amazing, but at the same time, you have to take a step back and think about what is more important, being happy or the career. And so anytime you watch somebody win an award on, you know, in the film business, and they're like falling, like crying and all that stuff, those tears aren't 
of joy, those tears are might as well be blood because they have given up given up a lot and paid the toll. Um, a lot of people don't have kids and they don't have families. The family that they have is in the business. And, you know, you can go from sleeping in your car to being rocky. You can go from being laughed at and ridiculed at a party, face down drunk, to 10 years later being, you know, Iron Man. The business is, it's give, take, balance. And I loved it. But I was so glad to be able to say, you know what, I'm walking away from it and I'm going to figure out what I want to do and build my own temple. So now you're yeah. not in movies. You're not working on any movies or shows anymore? I am not. I moved back to Chicago. Put it like this. 2020 has definitely been a Barbara Walters year because it's given me vision into a lot of things, not only about myself, but in my, in my career and things like that, that I've decided to really focus on. But then COVID kind of stripped a lot of the things that I wanted to do away. I went through a, a lot this year with divorce and health things, and, and those things had to be put on the back burner, but I decided that 2021 would be the launch of what I truly think I should be doing, which is finding talents, facilitating them, and, and making them great, and telling great stories. And that's, that's the new move. You know what I mean? Elaborate on that just a little bit. What do you mean by finding talents and facilitate? Like, what exactly do you mean there? I am literally in my phone looking every single day on things like Twitch, on Reddit, on any of these niche, like niche pop culture platforms, right, that have people who are indelible, who can tell great stories, who are connected, who can have a point of view and, and have people not only listen to it, laugh at it, respect it, or love it, or anything like that. Um, and so I have been scouring to try and find these people and connect with them and literally produce and make their shows. I want to produce and make other people's shows and build them and find what makes them great and facilitate that. It's kind of like what Disney does with everything. You know, find the great thing, gives them money, lets them go, and do their thing. And, you know, it's something for me that's fun. I've always wanted to, to kind of do stuff like that. And I think it'll be a great experience for me just to have fun with shows for once where I have control. You know, like having to give my last cigarette to Selma Hayek because she smokes Newport. Suck. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so it's like one of those things where I'm like, you know, like one of those great memories. But I want to have my own great memories and I want to build, build my own temple. So that's something I've been doing, and I'm looking at all platforms. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You gave some Hayek a cigarette? Yeah. Oh, man, I've got all kinds of fun stories, like uh, Luke Cage, Rosario Dawson. Nice, sweet, amazing. So wonderful. My culture, most of you don't know this, but at night, so it's hard to light black skin because at night it doesn't reflect well. You can't see outlines and things like that. So they actually had to blacken my culture at night to shoot him. Most people don't know that <laughs> because of the way that skin works. And so like some of the things that I saw on set with the way that fans and people react to actors is hilarious. I literally was, I was at the food truck and, I, and some lady rolled down the street and was like, I love you, Mike. I love you. And I was like, the most ridiculous thing and she was like 
didn't pay any attention to it. And afterwards, he, I, I, I looked at my friend Cody, uh, uh, and I was like, man, does that happen a lot? And Mike was like, all the time. And it was just like a normal thing for him. And it's like, some of the things that happen to, to some of these people are just so normal that it's mind-blowing. It's just like some of the funniest, craziest things, like, you know, from Ben Diesel's D&D set, or Dungeons and Dragons set that's super elaborate and nice, to the fact that each Marvel costume, each one, costs a million dollars to make. Whoa, one. a million dollars per costume? In totality of trying to build one, right? That was what I was told. I didn't question it. I didn't get to any of the details, and I don't want to reveal a lot of the, the stuff. that I don't want to chip away at the magician's hat. But, for instance, this is how you would suit up for a Marvel co- a costume. Okay, are you ready? First, you have to wear biker trunks. Then, you put on a cooling suit. Then, you put on a muscle suit. Then, you put on your first layer. The reason that it is very hard to be a, a, a character or any of these superhero movies whether it's DC or any of that stuff, is that when you become a character, they take you to a place where they 3D scan you, and then they create an injection mold, which is the equivalent of like a a modeling dummy when you go to the clothing store and you see the little guys who are dressed in the clothes. Well, they do that to scale of your body. And then they start designing. They take fabrics from all over. They pull from everything. Um, For instance, Black Panther was pulled from different parts of Africa as a continent. So the northern winter parts were pulled from the mountain, mountain tribes. Some of the designs and everything were just an amalgamation of different tribes and different colors of Africa. Chris Lakoti was one of the key customers who literally carved by hand a Black Panther suit. These are the things that, and the details, and the, and the amazing, amazing skill. And this is not just for them. I'm talking for any shows that you work on Anything that you see, the amazing amount of skill is so impressive because people do these things and a lot of times have the best attitude on the planet because one of the greatest things about working in that kind of business is that after a show ends, people get rehired and you only might work for eight months, 10 months. The fact that you are a good employee, but you work hard and you're likable resonates. It's not like you have to go to work with somebody you hate for, for five years. You literally can only be with someone for five months. And if they're not good, and they're not good at their job, and, and their likability is great, but they're not good at their job, you know, you won't re, you may not rehire them. But if their likability is great and they're strong at their job, you'll love to work with them. So it's like you get to filter out people. The laundry list of awesome things can keep going from, all right, I'm, this might be revealing a little too much, but Robert Downey Jr., wanted to fly the set in Atlanta everywhere like Tony Stark so he did every set all the shoots he flew by helicopter it wasn't like this posh kind of I'm better than you think it was like this literal like Tony Stark's arriving kind of smiley kind of thing it was it was taken very laughable and, and very with and a lot of fun it wasn't like something that was negative and it just you know there are so much stuff like that on Godzilla you know like scanning a tooth that's like two stories big and like I can't tell you how much I am in awe and impressed by all the people all the names that people sit through or don't even care about that put up at least 12 hours a day
original name that you see in the credit, put in a minimum 12 hour day to give you the product that you see. They sacrifice a lot and do a lot and it's so awe-inspiring and inspiring that I always, always, always try and be humbled by what they do. What was the last project that you worked on? The last show I was on was The Watchmen for HBO. And there have been multiple times where actually I've worked on shows with, uh, where Regina King was a part of them because she actually directs. By the way, uh, Regina King could outrun 90% of the people that you will meet on the street. I didn't know this, but like, I guess she runs a lot. Dude, there's a scene where she has to sprint through like debris and stuff, and she's running. I was so surprised. I was like, did she run track in college? But I don't know if she actually went to college because she did 227. Uh, but The Watchmen was the last show I was on. I never forget the last time I was ever on set. I was staring at a lake. It was foggy at night. And I told myself, I was like, the next time I ever step on set will be for my own show. And I won't go back on that. But maybe I will, you know, for money. But to be honest with you, it was one of those surreal moments where when Jordan decides to retire, I'm not Jordan. But, you know, when people decide to step away from their passion, it's one of those moments where you have to really, really find serenity. That balance of happiness, joy, but a little sorrow. And so the last show I was on was Watchmen. Gotcha, gotcha. And you have named all kinds of names and people that you had the opportunity to work with and meet. Give me a couple people that, you know, you loved working with and if you could, you know, sit down at a bar and have a drink with them, not working and stuff like that, you would enjoy being in their company. The best people I've ever worked with, the most impressive and just amazing people first. The one thing I, I will say always is that titles don't matter. Skills never mattered to me. I mean, it did. But most importantly, the person. Number one is Paul Simmons. Second generation costume supervisor. A legend. This guy's worked on everything from Belly to, oh man, Cold Mountain to so many of these really iconic black movies as well as non-black movies. And he is a African-American costume supervisor. He is funny. He is charming. He sets the tone of hard work, embodies everything that you would want, not only in just a person, but as a, as a person on a show. And he has taught me so much, not only just about working on shows, but about myself and really understanding and respecting what other people are doing by setting the tone and working hard. That, this is a good question, because now that I'm scrolling through the Rolodex of people that i very proud to know, on a side note, if you ever get invited to an art department show, I mean, art department, like, party, go to it. It's amazing, 90% of the time. I would say, uh, secondly, that would have to be Vinny Augustino. He was a UPM on uh, Factor 7. Funny, connective, hardworking, taught me so much about production, but most importantly, taught me so much about moving with the wind in your ear. Being a good person and going against the grain at times can sometimes be important. Uh, and just being always true to yourself throughout a rough business. A person that I met briefly, but I'm telling you, is just as amazing as a celebrity as they are in real life. And that's Oprah. I worked on Selma, and Oprah is one of the most amazingly nice, charming and realist people I have ever worked with on a show. She is totally everything you would think 
in real life as she is on her shows and her personalities, and she's just really wonderful in a down-to-earth, connective way. It was like, you know, the Allen Iverson speech where Michael Jordan walks in and he sees his aura? That's how I felt about Oprah when I saw her. I felt even better or stronger about that when in Selma she slapped somebody. And I realized that Oprah slapped somebody in every single movie she's in. Beloved, she slapped somebody. Uh, Color Purple, she slapped somebody. So it's like, <laughs> if Oprah shows up, somebody getting slapped. She was just really kind and really sweet, uh, funny, uh, connective, and she constantly makes people feel like she's not Oprah, but she's Oprah. Uh, that resonates with folks. On Selma, she was just amazing to everybody in the local, all the people. Everybody was really inspired to be there when she arrived because of how her influence within the black culture and the black community and how that much that resonates. You know what I'm saying? Because there's like, you know, a lot of black households got Martin Luther King, Black Jesus, <laughs> and a civil rights painting in their house. At some point, they're going to add Obama, and at some point, they're going to add Oprah. You know what I'm saying? Like, she's in that pinnacle of just really graceful and just really nice and just really, really, really cool. When you got one name, like, it's Oprah through... Global wide, not nationwide, like worldwide, she's just one name. That means you're a boss regardless. <laughs> yeah, like Bono. Or Sting. <laughs> right, right. The, the name is alone, but Oprah's, yeah, one just up there. Or Chica in Chicago, Parky. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to the fans in a second. I got one more movie question, and that's just what was your favorite project to work on? I gotta say, Selma. Selma was amazing because of just what we were doing, right? We were making a film about the marches in Selma, Alabama. Martin Luther King had his bridge, and that moment and recreating that moment as an African-American person or as a person in America was really surreal because the scene where they crossed the bridge, right, and you see all these, all these uh, people yelling obscenities at African-Americans, one of the craziest juxtapositions I've ever saw in my in my life as a person was right after they yelled "cut." The amount of love and hugs and sorrow and realism that people have felt on both sides. I, at one point, I literally looked at someone, and this guy was like, a Caucasian male was like, "I'm so sorry. I, I, I really don't want to yell these obscenities." And the black dude goes, "No, nah, man, you got to add an ER to it. Yeah, you're real into it." And it, it was just one of these things where. People wanted to make it authentic and real so that people could understand the authentic and real reality of racial relations in that time period. And the energy and the respect of something like that was so amazing. Not to mention just staying at the St. James Hotel, where it was the most haunted place on the planet, uh, working with Paul Simmons and Ruth Carter. Ruth Carter is the costume designer for Black Panther and one of the most legendary costume designers ever. And she's just amazing. Um, it's really where I, I really found myself really falling in love with the business. It's where I really found myself falling in love with with understanding that if I worked and sweated and bled and took the time to appreciate, I would never work a, a day in my life again. Time has changed that, but that was the one time I think I really, really, really loved what I was doing a lot. And also, I'm not going to lie, 
going to Selma, Alabama and realizing how old school Selma, Alabama was, I mean, put it like this, they still got 3G. They don't even have 4G or 5G in Selma, Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) They have pay phones? (laughs) Oh, man. Put it like this, the St. James Hotel is contemporarily, like, modernized, but old school and haunted. Like, legit haunted. I'm telling you, I was, at one point, I was the first person there to stay, it was three of us staying in that hotel, the whole entire hotel. The people there were like, you must greet the painting. And the painting was someone who worked at the St. James, right? St. James Hotel is where Jesse James, along the Mississippi, used to stay when he was on the run and, and just being Jesse James. Well, he hooked up with someone's wife there. And the dude's wife didn't like that and shot her in the hallway. And since then, that place has been heavily haunted. It's considered one of the most haunted places, not only in the country, but in the world. And I'm telling you, it ain't no joke. I literally was in my phone. I got a text message from the, from one of three people who were staying in the hotel at the time. And they were like, hey, man, is there a party here? And I said, party? I opened my door, looked down, looked down the hallway, and there was nothing. But you could hear things. And I said, oops, I'm going to bed. <laughs> I was like, nope, I'm not doing this. It was, it was amazing. You know, I ate fried chicken on the banks of the Mississippi and stayed next to the hotel that he actually, you know, stayed in. You know, those are moments that no money, no, nothing could ever buy. They're memories that I, I will always have. So you've been all over the place, Atlanta, Florida, from Chicago, back in Chicago. Where does your heart lie when it comes to sports? Who are your teams? I was born in Chicago, raised in Evanston. I am a Sox fan. Sorry, Cubs, but no. Uh, I'm a diehard Bears fan. Ugh, so hard right now. Diehard Bulls fan. I support the Blackhawks. I try and support MLS soccer, but I'm much more of a global soccer fan because I play FIFA. And in terms of sports, I, I love the competitive nature of sports. And, and I try and follow college sports and, and even local high school sports as best as I can. So, Did you hop on the FIFA bandwagon because of Cavelli? <laughs> no. See, I started with winning 11 Pro Evolution Soccer. And before that, it was called winning 11-8. Okay? I started playing soccer games before Coco a.k.a. Mr. Cavelli, and it was interesting because I got a soccer game for super cheap, and I fell in love instantaneously. My international team was the Ivory Coast, and so Yaya Toure became my favorite player, and the reason I chose the Ivory Coast was because I was like, man, I want to get a black team. <laughs> I was like, I want to get a black team. So I went and got the Ivory Coast. My club team was AC Milan. And this is when they had Kakash, Jardino, Shevchenko. I mean, they they were stacked. And the only reason I chose them was because of their jersey. And so when Yaya Toure went to Man City, I followed him to Man City. And so my number one and two club teams are Man City and AC Milan. I try and follow a lot of the uh, international teams. And just, I mean, I, I play FUT, so like... <sighs> I know a lot about a lot of players all over the world. Lewandowski in Poland uh, to Diago Aspas in Spain. When I play FUT, I have a Spanish Best of Spain League, or the Spanish clubs, uh, Best of Italian clubs, Best of the German clubs, Best of 
uh, you know, African club, Africa as a continent. I, I really get into uh, soccer, video games. <laughs> So nice, man. Nice. I really haven't. I really haven't. The only time I ever played was probably with Coco. Probably the only time I've ever played. Yeah, me and Brian have been playing Madden and soccer for a very long time. Actually, we just got back with Madden this year, but we used to have some epic battles in my friend Josh's basement. So yeah, there we go. Yeah. You, uh, kind of said bears you said die hard and it kind of sounded like with sorrow said not that good they're in the playoffs they made it but now they're up against the saints that might be a different story uh yeah it's like i feel like the bears are the james once again the james Harden. their game is not strong enough and they got in on a, technical, on a technicality i think that mr brisky has very 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 troubled accuracy his ability to throw downfield and decision making to scan through his reads are. Ooh, I mean, he stares down receivers almost the whole entire game. Uh, I think the Bears actually have a pretty good squad. They just need a quarterback. Unfortunately, Matt Nagy might lose his job because his quarterback situation has been very bad. Throwing uh, Ryan Pace too. And you know what's funny? Me and Coco had a debate. I think Ryan Pace. The only thing that I think he did bad was Mitch Trubisky. Because he also got Montgomery. He also got our Mike Linebacker, our rookie cornerback. I mean, the offensive line needs some work. Our receiving core is really solid. He's really gotten a lot of talent. And the talent that he's gotten, you know, Roquan Smith and all these players have really developed. I think the defensive coordination needs to be way better. They run way too much man. They need to switch it up. That's what Vic Bangio was really good at was disguising man and cover twos and cover threes and blitzes and things like that. And that's why they were able able to be so good. Robert Quinn didn't work out, I don't think, as well. But they have talent. They just need a quarterback. Unfortunately, a general manager will live or die with a quarterback decision, even if they get all the pieces that you talked about before. That's kind of how it goes in the NFL. Yeah, and it's ridiculous. The reality is, is that a quarterback is a, is literally the role, a role of a, a die. I mean, like, yes, Mitch Trubisky was picked ahead of all these great players. But if you go to every single draft, every, I mean, like so many players were, were picked ahead of so many great players. And so you really don't know. But to be honest with you, when they said Mitch Trubisky, you know, North Carolina, I was kind of like, uh, yeah, they play basketball up there. Uh, right. So was I. So was I. <laughs> I was like, that's not SEC. That's by the sea, but it ain't SEC. Like, they that's not even Big Ten. I would take Big Ten over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I would take I would take Pac-12, Big Ten, Big Ben, Midwest, North Dakota State. I would take all these places <laughs> over, or you know, just pick a high school out of Texas. I mean, somebody like Mitch Trubisky. I think has all the physical tangible, but his accuracy is is really rough, really bad, man. I mean. I, 90% of the catches that the receivers make are so spectacular. Reaching, diving, creating space. I mean, the receiving core of the Bears, I think, don't get enough credit for how much they do to save <laughs> Mr. Bisky. I mean, he, he his accuracy is so bad and, and, and you can tell you can tell that Nagy is forced to make these rollouts, these short dumping off plays, these hooks, these these plays that everyone sees coming. You run a cover two and, and it's over. It's just that, that, that because 
accuracy is awful and his decision making is oh my gosh. But oh, man. I do say when you were talking about the wide receiving core, Mitchell Trubisky needs to buy Allen Robinson's mom a house and him a car and his siblings Christmas gifts. Like he needs to buy that man everything. Right? Uh Jimmy Graham, uh Cole Komet, uh Allen Robinson, uh the other dude, Weems. Passes, 
even when you lose. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, just, just, just be an NBA All-Star game. You know, like, you might lose, but it's pretty. You know what I mean? <laughs> pretty or win? That's kind of where we're at at the, this point. The only W's that the... Uh, that's go, that we're going to see in Chicago Bulls Stadium is from Blackhawk. <laughs> <laughs> they beat the Wizards back-to-back games. I was cool with that. With Russell Westbrook uh, dropping triple dubs. Yeah, poor Russell Westbrook and Carmelo Anthony and Chris Paul and uh, everyone from John Stockton to Charles Barkley. They all are on that same boat of people who will most likely never win a championship because they didn't go to a stacked team or the team that they went to had James Harden. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, James Harden scores 87,000 points in the regular season and then just plays terrible in the playoffs. Absolutely awful. Like, Chris Paul literally, you could see Chris Paul on the bench wanting to rip his clothes off, put on his jersey just to get on the floor so he can snatch the ball from James Harden and say, <laughs> I can't stand this 22 or 27% shooting that you're doing in game six. I mean, there are so many times where I'm looking at so many players who play with this passion. You know, Russell Westbrook plays with passion, like Joe Kim Noah, and he plays with a, a fire. And to me, he's not going to win a championship because he has not been on a team that that's going to get there, and it's hard to watch him go through that. It's hard for you know Carmelo Anthony, Chris Paul, and all these great players to to constantly have to either play with you know with teams that aren't that great, or they cannot seem to elevate these people around them for some reason. Once again, all played with James Harden. The, the funny thing is, as you say James Harden, and then we talk about what Russell Westbrook, I really don't think Russell Westbrook is that far down from the James Harden that you're speaking of. He turns the ball over a million times in a minute, playoff games, end of fourth quarter, costs teams games too. I mean, he's a great player. I think James Harden's a great player too. But when you talk about these two, I kind of, I'm looking at the same kind of guy that can do all kinds of crazy stat stuff. But when it comes to killer instinct and let's win, yeah, he plays with passion, but he also messes up a lot and doesn't take that next step to win games either. Right. People talk about Jordan greatness, right? And what made him so great? He elevated the people around him. So, like, in a, in a way that you could tell. Like, people elevated themselves. And I think that the winning attitude and the winning ways of the NBA style of basketball nowadays is, you know, you either got to be stacked or you got to be stacked together. And it's interesting because the Lakers are so stacked. I mean, you got LeBron James and Anthony Davis on the same, same team. Um, you got the Brooklyn Nets. You got so many teams that are so stacked with talent. Boston like, Celtics. Yeah, but see, the Boston Celtics have talent, but they also know how to play as a team. Oh yeah. And I think that, and I think that that's what makes them kind of separate from themselves. And you know, it, it's just hard. It's so hard to win a championship in the NBA when you got you know four All Stars on the same team. And when the Warriors were winning, they had what, like four All Stars, three All Stars. You know, like. <laughs> Three of them were the top, what, five or ten scores in the NBA. Yeah, Kevin, angry, always weird, and and I'm glad he's with Kyrie because they can both be weird and kind of off players in the East and in Brooklyn where uh, I can't, I just don't like both of 
Kyrie says weird stuff, and Kevin Durant walks around like, you know, he's lost everywhere. Like, he, he's, he's so angry for no reason. I mean, dude, you, you won a championship on a coattails outfit of another championship team. You left in a kind of weird way from OKC that gave you a lot of love. You kind of shunned Russell Westbrook, who was your ride-or-die dude, and, like, you're always walking around here like, you know, the Grinch stole Christmas. And, like, be happy. Be happy with your balding hair. And... <laughs> Uh, that's Ultra skinny body. I mean, that dude's like a, a, a stop sign without the stop part. I mean, that's true. I, I don't like Kevin Durant. I'm, I'm sorry. I, he's a great player, but his it's just attitude is just, dude, go away. Be great. Go away. You got your ring. Like, let somebody else step up because I'm tired of seeing you. And Kyrie Irving is just weird. He is weird, but it's kind of fun to watch because I laugh at him, like the Twitter videos, and yeah, you know, it's it's funny. So I'll, I'll laugh at him. I don't really like him as a person. I do have him and James Harden on my fantasy basketball team. It's a keeper league. Been playing it for nine years, and I've had Harden, I think, for like seven of them, and Kyrie for probably the same amount of time. They give me dubs. I won it two years ago. Last year, I think I finished sixth place, but I dropped a couple people that I should have kept, and they went on to have good seasons. Anyway, long story short, I mean, yeah, Kyrie's super crazy weird. Says some off-the-wall stuff. If he didn't talk, he would be looked at as, like, the king or pope or something like that. But as soon as he opens yeah. his mouth, it's like, okay, get this guy out of here. Yeah, yeah, his greatness quickly declines, and it's, and it's like... The world's flat. Uh, I'm going to burn some sage. Uh, media are parasites. And it's like, you know, you start out a lot of stuff for somebody who's won a championship with LeBron James and then constantly have gone to teams where you, you've just been a nuisance. You've been great, but you've been a nuisance and you've kind of been a wreck. Now you're on a, <laughs> on a team with another person who just everybody says, Kevin Durant, you're a great player. That's it. <laughs> like, I don't want Kevin Durant to come hang out with me. He's, just, he's so miserly and, and just crotchety for no reason. Like, somebody stole my lunch money. And, and like, he's just like, like, dude, you, you know, you're great. And you're going to be a Hall of Fame player. But you just are so, ugh, I can't stand you, can't stand you when you open your mouth. For sure. For sure. I totally <laughs> yeah. agree with that. Well, yeah. we've been talking for quite a long time, which I love. Thank you again for being on the show. Mm -hmm. Let's play a game of hot potato. I'll give you two people, items, things, places, and you pick which one you like the best. All right, let's get it done. Since we've been talking about the Bears, we got to start. Mitchell Trubisky, Nick Foles. I mean, God, I can't believe I'm saying this. No, actually, I can't believe I'm saying this. Nick Foles. Just can't beat Mitchell Trubisky making better decisions. Nick Foles can't throw, but he makes better decisions. Gail Sayers, Walter Payton. Ooh. Oh, this is a blasphemous argument. Um, you got to give it to Walter Payton. Walter Payton. He's considered not only just the greatest, one of the greatest running backs, but you could make an argument for top five greatest football player of all time. I mean, he was a complete. He could block. He could catch. He could. Uh, Run with speed, power, agility, a vision. I mean, he just did it all, and he did it with grace and dignity. I mean, he was the Dr. J of his time, and, and he was just sweetness, and, and he just 
just amazing. Agreed. Agreed on all points there. Brian Erlacher, Khalil Mack. No, man, come on. I love Khalil Mack. His one-arm throws of offensive linemen. That shit alone should give him Hall of Fame credit. But Brian Erlacher, I grew up watching that dude snag interceptions out of the cover two, uh, run like a tank, chase down Michael Vick. You know what I'm saying? Like, this guy was getting blocked, blocked the pass, caught an interception while getting blocked the whole entire time. He just epitomized what Bears football was. Not just on de- as a defensive player, but just going out there and chasing down and playing hard and never being one of these people that just wasn't the heart and soul of his team. Unfortunately, some of his, you know, more recent things have kind of, you know, we'll talk about that later, but he's an amazing, amazing epitome of Chicago Bears football. Tony Stark or Iron Man? Okay, here's the difference. I will add the caveat of Tony Stark comic book versus Iron Man. Tony Stark comic book is way different. Dark, alcoholic, womanizing, all kinds of stuff. Iron Man, new Iron Man is like a cleaned up version of that. I would have to go with comic book Iron Man because at the time he was a C-level comic book character that they elevated. So I'm going to go with Tony Stark. Gotcha, gotcha. Vin Diesel or The Rock? Oh my God, the, the Rock. Not only as a person on screen and outside of the world of acting, his energy the way that he approaches things is so great. Um, also, his acting chops are actually very good and solid, and he's just a really great guy. Really, really great guy. Not just like Vin Diesel, but, you know, Vin Diesel is kind of a character actor. He plays the same dude. Swole, quiet, Vin Diesel, Diesel Vin kind of, got, kind of guy. He's nice, but, you know, I think Dwayne Johnson is an amazing carrier of characters. Chris Rock, Kevin Hart. I don't know about Kevin Hart, but Chris Rock. No, that's my. That's a terrible Chris Rock impression. Uh, <laughs> Chris Rock, I think, is a great, awesome, and amazing stand-up comedian. I think Kevin Hart is funny as a comedian and as an actor. But if I had to pick, I gotta go with. Uh, I gotta go with Chris Rock. You know, some of the things he's done have set the tone so that Kevin Hart can be Kevin Hart. So I just, I like Chris Rock. When we were talking about basketball, you brought both of these up, and now I'm kind of curious. John Stockton, Chris Paul. I think people need to get this in their head. John Stockton is one of the greatest point guards ever. He leads the league by far in assists. He leads the league by far in assists that it's almost one of those unbreakable records like Wayne Gretzky's uh, record and just like Cal Ripken's record, right? And if you were to equate those assistants to point, John Stockton's numbers shoot so high up that he, you would have to almost make the argument, what, top three at his position? Also, John Stockton leads the NBA in career steal. He also shot a very high percentage, scored and played the game of basketball all around well with high shorts on in the 90s. This dude looked like somebody's soccer mom's dad, and he would wreck you on the basketball court. John Stockton, does, in my opinion, does not get enough credit for how great he was. I mean, to be able to lead the league and assist and steal 
many times Chris Paul shoots and scores or whatever he does to, to bring his game, Josh Stockton is the is one of the most all-around complete players in NBA history. By far. Hands down. I don't care what anyone says. Challenge me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, man, that seems like a good spot to stop, let you go. Robert Shelton, thank you very much for joining Edge of Your Seat Podcast. I'm glad that I personally got a chance to talk with you, get to know you a little bit, and you know, share your story with all our listeners. So thank you again for coming on Edge of Your Seat Podcast, my friend. And I want to thank you for having this podcast. It's, it, it's so awesome. It's all everything that a podcast should be, and I wish you all the success and more. If I can ever come back and we can just talk sports, that would be amazing as well. I, lo- I love the way that you interlace your segments, your uh, your commercials, and everything you do is very well done. You should be very, very proud of yourself, man. I'm not just blowing smoke. I mean, very well done.